Hey, this is Billy Claudio. I'm the pastor of Oasis Community Church, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you. I hope it builds your faith, and I hope you find freedom today through the gospel. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here with us today. Got a number of friends that are from out of town and visiting. Thank the Thomas family and all the connected. Got another, yeah, the Thomases are back. Um, another friend from uh, NLDC that served in 10, 10 years is here as well from Minnesota. So we're glad that you guys are here today. Uh, I'm really excited about this past week. All the kids that had a great time, parents that are here today that are celebrating with their kids and just that fun. Uh, we've been in a series called Cancel Culture. We've been talking about how the, the culture has gotten to this place of deep negativity where they're canceling anybody that disagrees with them. And it began with a, a kind of a heavy mode toward people with morality or uh, this mindset of what was going on. But then it's turned on even the people that started Cancel Culture finding themselves getting canceled in a high level. Uh, the truth is, is when judgment doesn't have love associated to it, at the end it's always going to be a bad deal. And so we've been going over the context of counterculture. How do we respond as individuals to the counterculture? What is our role to play in maybe reformulating things in our culture that will be healthy and helpful? And today I'm going to talk about something that I think is critically important. But before I do, I want to say this. Hope can change the world. Hope is a powerful thing. When someone gets a breath of hope, it's an amazing component in someone's life. When things seem dark and a breath of hope comes to someone's life or heart, it's amazing how it begins to perpetuate them or compel them to begin to do things maybe they've never done before or have a new sense of, of something good is going to happen. And I believe this with all of my heart, that the church is the hope for the world because the church is the representation of Jesus Christ in the world. And I want to tell you, whatever ails you in your life, a God of love and faithfulness has provided you a means of getting out of wherever you are, the trouble that you found yourself in, the challenges that you're experiencing. And I want you to know that he wants to bring hope to you today and inspire you for a better and brighter tomorrow. And it is because of the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, that we have an opportunity to be redeemed and saved for a better and brighter tomorrow. And Jesus that came and lived on this earth and, and died for us in our sins, he is the only hope for real redemption because he is the only one that can save us from our sins. He is the only one to give us power over our sins. And just as Jesus has provided a way for us to live, here's something important for us to note. Jesus has provided a way. There is an adversary that is out after you that is trying to lead you from the way. This is a common practicum in life that many people we always have. You know, if you've got an angel on one side, right, and you've got a what? Everyone understands the dynamic. Well, I've got the good angel on this shoulder, and I've got the bad angel on this shoulder. We kind of get the context, but the truth is, it's a reality. Jesus is leading a path to the way, and the enemy is leading you a path astray. Jesus makes this statement in John 10, 10. He says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I want you to notice the contrast. God's way is life and the other way is loss and death and destruction. There's a deep contrast between the two. And the truth is, is that we are in a fight for finding and discovering the way. And because there is a way, there's also something that's not the way. In our society that we live in today, there's an individualism, that, a secularism, and an individualism that basically says anybody can choose their own way. The challenge with that is, is it, is it possible for someone to choose the wrong way? Yeah. 
Right? The, what would we say? Yes, if there's two ways, someone can honestly choose the wrong way. And there's a, there's a premise that's going on in our society today that says, well, whatever way you choose is the right way because you chose it. And I want you to know that the premise of that is faulty in its very nature. And it's an imperative for us to understand that as Jesus declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life, discovering what that way is will help us learn what the wrong way possibly is. How many of you don't want to go the wrong way? Right? The mode of that destruction, that suffering, and that loss becomes by following the adversary or the thief. It's important for us to understand we want to go in a different direction. It seems like an easy choice. Go the right way with Christ or maybe go the wrong way and let destruction come our way. This is where our understanding of God and our faith come into play. This is where our understanding of who God is, what God is like, and how he wants us to live and become like him are really, really, really important. This is an important part I want you to understand. God has a pattern of living. And learning it and walking it out is the highest form of living. God has a pattern. He has a, a way, a, the, the way to live. And learning it and walking it out is the highest form of living. In other words, you will live life at the fullest when you learn to understand the pattern of God's design of living well. From the beginning of creation, God had a plan. God created man, did some wonderful things for man. And from the very beginning, the adversary was there right in the beginning to distort God's way of living. Because this is true. Satan is opposed to us living out God's plans and purposes. He'll be totally content if you just go astray from God's plans and, 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 and do your own way or go your own purpose because he knows in that God isn't glorified and destruction comes your way. If you remember back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there. I'm going to begin. We see this adversary show up right in the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the, the, the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, important note, God provides a perfect place for man to live out life to the fullest. He puts him in the garden. Right? He puts in this beautiful Garden of Eden. Everything that they need to be engaged with God and to live a fruitful life is available. And yet God puts a tree in the middle of the garden. How many of you go, that should not have happened, right? In our minds, why would you put a tree in the garden? I mean, you're giving them an opportunity to fail. The truth is, is that God created man to, to pour his love upon them. God wanted to love humans. God created humans to empower them and to love on them. And the only way that God could receive love back from man was if he gave them an opportunity not to love him. How many of you know that in relationships, you don't want someone to be forced to love you, right? Because if, if, if it's forced love, is it love at all? I love you, babe. Right? We want real love. God created humans to have the ability, the unique ability, to have a desire of loving God back in a pure form. And the only way they could purely love God back is if they had a way not to love him back, but chose to love. So God puts this tree in the garden so that they would have the opportunity to truly be in a loving relationship with God. We find this in that God has provided this perfect place. He puts man as the object of his love there. And it's in this opportunity of choice that they have the opportunity to fulfill this love responsibility to God. So what do we find in the very, very beginning? 
Satan is about to cancel God's word in the very start of humanity. God has spoken. God has said this is the plan. Genesis 3 says, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. And let me say this. In the very beginning, Satan is called more cunning. And I want you to just ask this question of yourself. How many think that you know how life should go? Don't lie to me. We all do. We all go, you know, those people are crazy. I'm not crazy. I got it figured out. I know what's going on. I, you know, those people are the ones that are messed up, not me. You know, it's really important to understand this is that the enemy is a master deceiver. His goal, his manipulation tactic is to get you to buy into a lie that is anti-God's purpose and God's plan and for you to possess it on your own or for what you feel is your own sense to go, I got this. We see right in the beginning the cunningness of Satan to come to Eve in a conversation. He goes, he's the beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat. Now she adds a law, nor shall you touch it. How many of you know we didn't see that in the beginning? You know, our human nature is we got a law, we're always going to add something on top of it. You know, don't only eat it, you don't touch it either, just stay, don't even look at it. Human nature is always to add more rules and regulations to the things that God has said. But we see here, she responds and says, no, we can't eat every tree, we can't eat that one in the middle. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This is interesting, isn't it? God has spoken. Adam and Eve look at the tree. It's a pretty tree. The fruit looks like it's good like all the other trees. And yet God has said, don't eat of that tree. Now the common temptation of humanity was like, that just does not make sense. It's a tree with fruit. Trees with fruit are made to eat. Now, I'm trying to paint a picture to you to understand how, how, I'll say it this way, not fully intending it, how gullible we can be in the very nature of ourselves because there are many times you've understood the path of God, the way of God, and yet you've begun to assess and see, you know, that rule or that guiding system or that conversation that we see in Scripture, I don't really know if I buy into that because when I look at it, it looks like it's fine by me but i want you to notice what the serpent did he said he he basically said the opposite of what god had said he said if you eat the fruit god said you're going to die i'm telling you you're not going to die as a matter of fact you are going to become your own boss you know our nature is my nature is i don't want anybody telling me what to do can i get any amen from anybody that's our nature right don't tell me what to do you can leave me you can show me just don't Tell me. Something inside me rises up, and we see the nature of man exposed in Eve herself when he says, listen, God's told you something, but I want you to know, don't put your trust in what God has said. Satan is beginning to cancel. Verse number six, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to her eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. You see, their eyes were open. It sounds so good. Your, your eyes have been open. You can see what's going on. You know what their eyes were open to? The reality of evil and sin and what happened when they ate, shame came upon their own soul in such a way that they felt their nakedness or felt a sense of unholiness. Have you ever done something before in your life where your gut just went, like you just knew, you were like, I mean, it was visceral. I mean, you felt this, this stain, this junk on you. You were just like, I just, it's, 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 I can't even describe it. It's like the, that, 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 that sin just is alive in here. I feel it like I'm breathing. This is what they sensed. And when God showed up, the story goes on to say, they ran from the Lord and hid. And God said, why are you hiding? Because the power of Satan will always lead you away from God and into this broken spirit this broken place in our humanity which is why understanding the guidance of god and the way of god is so critically important they felt that shame they felt the separation of their souls from the very god who had created them how did they get there they bought into the lie of the enemy of their souls that disregarding god's word would turn out to be just fine they bought into the lie if you do this, it ain't going to be no biggie. No, you're smart enough to get it. You're wise enough to get it. They bought into the lie from the enemy that disregarding God's word would turn out just fine. And I want you to know it is the exact opposite. This is why it's so critical for us to understand the will and way of God, particularly in a society that says every way and any way is as good as the next, which gives no rule or place for adversary or deception. Today, this message we're hearing is about cancel culture. And it's a problem in our society. But the sad truth is, is that the Christian society has been infected by the cancel culture and by the secular society and individualism that biblical morality and biblical guidance is even misunderstood by many in the church today. There are many, when you begin to do surveys to ask questions about biblical truth and biblical faith, the numbers are almost 50-50 on some of the deep central topics of Christian faith. The Christians that go to church and say, I'm a Christian, don't buy into the traditional morals or fabric of, the, of what is taught in Scripture. And the question is, why? How is that possible? Has God changed his mind and way? No, but the tactics, of the, end, the tactics of the enemy have grown stronger and more influential. You know, one of the greatest inventions that we've had in our lifetime, anybody know what it is? The internet. Isn't it amazing? You get on your phone, like someone said to me, well, what's this question? I said, wouldn't it be weird if we had something we could just ask right now? push a button, get a conversation. It tells me what I want to know in a split second. A great, amazing invention. And yet, this amazing invention that could, could, could be used to proliferate the gospel of Jesus Christ, that could be used to accentuate truth and pu push it out, has been the exact opposite tool that has been used by the secular culture and the world to propagate all kinds of evil, crazy stuff. But more importantly, the infusion of antichrist conversation and communication to make people of faith begin to question the very faith that they possess, and the only reason they question it is because they don't know the truth well enough that when they hear the lie, they can't discern. They go, well, the fruits look the same. Uh, uh, uh. Today's an invitation to get ourselves ready for the 
place that we're in. Because here's what I want you to know. Satan has a plan to minimize your faith and steal your influence in this generation. Satan has a plan. He wants to minimize your faith. He wants you to basically be faithless. He, he, don't, he doesn't want you to have a strong faith. He doesn't want you to have an active faith. He doesn't want you to have a, a sturdy faith. He wants to minimize your faith and steal your influence for the generation we're supposed to be impacting for his kingdom. First Peter says this, be sober, be vigilant, wake up, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour he's ready to eat up christians he's speaking he's writing to the church he said beware the enemy is coming out he's out to get you and tear you down he's out to steal your faith he goes on to say in the very next verse and i think this is significant resist him in other words it's time to stand up and say i got to do something this force is coming this way and if i don't stand and create at least an equal enough force i'm going to be overpowered steadfast how do i resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He basically is talking about the persecution that is going on. And the world is pushing against faith and pushing against the Christian values. And this is the early church. And he's saying, you need to stand up. You need to resist. Get steadfast in your faith, which is the faith is based on the principles in the word of God. And our understanding of who God is and what God is like. And how he invites us to live in this world. Resist, stand up, don't back down, get out of our slumber. Let's get engaged in the activity of God. The Lord is inviting us. The enemy is looking to take you out of the game. He wants you to take the apple that's dangling in front of you. He wants you to throw out the words of God and say, every tree is the same. When God says, no, every tree isn't the same. The great deception of Satan is the same. God is keeping you from really living the life you deserve. In other words, you ought to be able to do whatever you want. God, if you want to do it, God's trying to keep you from it. Those rules, those regulations, are, and we call them rules and regulations, they're honestly just God guiding you and trying to protect you. You know, as a parent, when you're teaching your kids to drive, anybody remember those days? Anybody scared to death? Right? Right? You remember those days. Well, you, you, you know, back in the day when they had driver's ed, they'd have a, a teacher that would be sitting in, 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 in a car next to the kid, and they'd have an extra break, right, to help protect in the guiding story of what's going on. Well, God in our life is simply someone trying to help us learn how to go down the path that he wants us to go in our steering, and he's there breaking for us at times to help us prepare for what's next. He's not trying to keep you for something. He's trying to bring something into your life. And I'm going to say and invite you, don't buy into the lie of Satan. God is trustworthy, and what he says is worth following. God is trustworthy, and what he says is worth following. God is trustworthy, and what he says is worth following. God knows God has a pattern of living and learning it and walking it out is the highest form of living. We have to trust God in his way. So how do we learn to trust God? Well, it begins in the simplest forms. God always goes like this. I love you. He tries to express his love to us. Something happens inside of us where God invites us to forgiveness. God invites us to grace. How many of you ever messed up? God takes messed up people and says, you're all right. Come here. You need help, a lot of help. 
but I love you. And all that mess up you did, I'm not judging you for it. As a matter of fact, I'm not condemning you. I'm inviting you into a new life. You don't worry. I love you. I'm inviting you. The first step is God loving you first. And your response is to do this. How do we become this person of faith that can walk and toe the line of following God in a meaningful way? And let me just say this. I am an example of someone that has tried my whole life to follow the path of God in, in difficult times and sometimes against temptations and difficulties of what I wanted compared to what God wanted. And when I was 19 years old, I remember I was going through the first struggle of do I believe the word and what it, what it says? And I was like, you know, I like, ooh, mm, uh, ooh I like this. Ooh, I don't like that. <laughs> Oh, I like the, ooh, I like that. Oh, 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 I don't like that. And I began to have this struggle of going, identifying the things that I liked, the, the apples I liked, and the ones I didn't. And the Lord began to challenge me and say, hey, how's this going to go? And I'm like, Lord, you know how hard it is. You know, if I was doing it, I would, I would maybe have done it differently. And I was reminded, I'm not God. And that's a good reminder for all of us, isn't it? I remember taking this Bible and putting it on top of my head, literally saying, Lord, I'm going to become a student of your word and your truth. And when I struggle with my desire and your truth, help me surrender my will to your will so that I can live the best life you have. And I've done that in my life. And I can tell you by the journey I've been on, it is a blessed life. It's not perfect. It's not without trouble. It's not without pain. But let me tell you, the peace that you have, the comfort that you have, the encouragement that you have in Christ when you live by the word is an amazing peace that you can't pay for. It is a gift that comes from God for us that choose to follow in his way. How do we learn to trust God? We find in Deuteronomy, and Jesus quotes this actually in the New Testament, the loving God, loving life, loving people. We'll get to that. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, how do we learn to trust God? When God begins to love us, we begin to respond. It says in verse number five, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Take to heart these words I give you today. He basically says, I want you to learn to love God back. How am I going to take it to heart? Well, the first step is this attitude and action of love, of understanding what Christ really has done for you. He came and sacrificed his life so that you could have a better and brighter tomorrow, that you could be saved from your sins. And your response is simply to love God back in return. That's the beginning. You know, Jesus said it this way, love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Then he said, and then take it to the next level and love your neighbor like yourself. I want you to learn this essence of love, and if you'll make this commitment to love me in return. And then he goes on to say this, and back in that last verse, he said, take to heart these words. Love God. Take it to heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home or away, when you lie down or get up. Write them down and tie them around your wrist. Wear them as headbands, as a reminder. Write them on the doorframe of your house and on your gate. What is he saying? Listen to the intensity of the command. You need to get the word of God in front of your eyes. Where, Lord? Everywhere. And if there's ever been a time that we need the word of God to be perpetuated on us all the time, it's today. Because if you notice this, the average person touches their cell phone, they say, over a thousand times a day. Now, thank God there's Bible apps. Thank God there you can touch your phone and 
I use my phone all the time. I hardly ever pick this up. I'm always reading on my phone nowadays with the, with the nature of it. But the need for us to begin to say, where is the word of God inside of you? Do you realize that every day that you wake up that there are myriads of information that are coming your way that are distracting you from following in the pattern and path of God? If you watch TV, I promise you, there are a thousand messages that don't line up with God's per, per, uh, personal desire for your life. You get on the internet, I promise you, there are a thousand messages, and I want you to know they're not mistake messages. They're not just somebody's idea. They are being perpetuated by the adversary of God to get you distracted from truth. And if you do nothing in this society to say, I've got to learn what the truth is so that I can, if I don't know the truth, I won't be able to differentiate for what is true, what is the way, and what is not the way. And today, in our Christian world, the church has relegated the preachers and the pastors to know the word and haven't taken responsibility to put the word, like God said, put it everywhere so that you are learning and can demonstrate it in your life. And he said in that passage, and you must repeat it to your children. And one of the main goals for us as Christians in this generation is to pass the word of God to the next generation. Because Satan is after the next generation and we can't sit by idly and not get ready to pass the word down to them. We have to embrace the next generation together. I love this passage. Jesus is ministering to people, doing all kinds of miracles, and the disciples are all hanging out with him, always kind of protecting him, but being with him. And all of a sudden, a bunch of these kids come up. We pick up the story in Matthew 19. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. But Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these. I want you to know the kingdom of heaven for reaching the world of the next generation is in the kids that are around us. And if we as individuals, as parents, and as church family members don't get active in passing on the heritage of truths to the next generation, we will lose a generation from knowing the truth and they won't be able to pass it on because we haven't, in our responsibility, passed it on to them. I want you to know, parents here, you're not alone. We're in this together. You have a big responsibility as a parent, but you are not alone. We as a church take responsibility. In critical times like this, the church carries a large responsibility. We did this kids camp this last week. Why? Because we want to impact the next generation with the truths of the kingdom of God. The great thing about a church is it provides an extended family. You know, the nuclear family is great, but the problem with the nuclear family is all these small little groups are living by themselves. It used to be we always used to have an extended family. You know, it's called the God, the God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, right? This idea of an extension. Well, the good news is, is the church becomes the extension of the family so that you don't have to do it alone. We share in the, the tutelage and the training of our kids, but we have to take personal responsibility to pass the message of hope on to them. So the church helps have that extended family. The church partners with parents in passing on values, character, and the truth of God. It's a great strength that we have, but it also, as a church, it shows us how to live well. The world can see people that begin to live by the truth and the dynamic of what it looks like to live by the truth so people can go, wow, that's a dynamic thing, dynamic way to live. You know, there's a really important thing that I think that we all need to understand. Ken Ham and his book Already Gone hired the Barner Group to do a survey of kids that left their faith when they went to college. He interviewed 1,200 kids that left their faith in college and they, 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 they sorry, they went, they, 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 they interviewed these kids. 
And they said, you know, we want to find out and discover what is it about you? When, what happened that made you leave your faith? And there's some very, very interesting things that it's shocking in a sense, but it's very insightful. You know, many people think that the church is losing its youth in college, that it's when they go to college that they quit having faith. But the truth is much more uh, fearful, much more uh, damaging than that. In his study, he found that about only 10%, a little over 10%, actually decided to leave their faith when they got to college. Here's the startling number. A surprising 43% had their first doubts of leaving their faith in high school, and 39% initially doubted in middle school. These are kids that went to Sunday school. These are kids that went to, were in conservative churches. These aren't just any church. These are conservative Bible-teaching churches. And the reason is, is because they'd go into a classroom. There'd be a nice Sunday school teacher. Parents weren't really preaching or living out the gospel at home. They'd come in. Someone would tell them a story about an intangible God, about stories that seemed so big and unrealistic that you tell them and they tell them like stories and say isn't that a nice story and then they would go to school and at school you'd have someone with a lab coat on that was going to be teaching them about math and about reading and about writing and about science and the mode of the teacher at school who was teaching them about facts competed with someone that was teaching them at church that was only telling stories and wasn't bringing culturally relevant truths that spoke about facts of the kingdom of God like they spoke about facts like they teach in high school, and kids began to have this disparaging mind. Well, if that's not true, and that's not true, and this is not true, and that, that's in their own opinion, they didn't validate it. Someone in school said, well, that's just not true. And they were like, well, whoa, what's the first I heard of that? Because you haven't told them that someone's going to tell them that it's not true, and you haven't given them a reason to defend why it is true. You've just said, I hope they do it. I hope they make it. And the truth is, is that God is calling us to a whole new place of revelation, of instruction for this next generation. We've got to be able to stand for our faith as it relates to morality, as it relates to sexuality, as it relates to, to all the difficult things that are going on right now. We have to have an answer, a logic-based answer, not just, well, the Bible says so. We've been, telling them, we've been telling them how they're supposed to live, and, and we're supposed to be telling them why they're supposed to live that way. Many of us find ourselves in a place of difficulty. But the question is, who's responsible for teaching our children? Obviously, ultimately, parents, we are. But you're not in it alone, and we realize that it's really important for us to begin to provide the avenue of instruction that will be a blessing. You know, in 30, 362 A.D., the Roman Empire, Julian, issued an edict forbidding Christianity to be taught in any schools while also instituting devotion to the pagan gods. So in our culture where they basically eliminated any Christian context of faith in schools, the idea they're preaching today is really atheism and secularism or individualism, do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, whatever you feel, that's true just because you feel it. So if you feel it, it must be true. This, this religion that's going on, the secular religion that's being pumped out is, well, it's not really religion when it really is religion because they're saying that's not a religion, this is the right way. And when you begin to explain truth and saying this is true, you're basically extrapolating from that a religious true or the way to live is true. And there's this context that's going on in our school systems. This happened generations ago in this first century. This is, he goes on to say, this is Aaron Arms in the Federalist said this, so while Christians were barred from teaching in schools, students who were Christians were openly accepted with the hope that they may be converted to paganism. Since these schools were the primary means by which an individual could achieve elite status, become a part of the noble, political, and ruling class, Julian assumed his edict would eventually end Christianity. 
Julian and Christians agreed that whoever controlled education controlled culture. You know, in those early days of Christianity, when that happened, the Christian leaders of the day said, we're in trouble unless we do something serious. And you know what? How many of you ever heard of catechism? Any Catholic friends out there, you know what I'm talking about? Catechism began in the 300s because of the need to say, wow, our kids are being infused with a different doctrine outside of the doctrine of Christianity, and if we say nothing and do nothing, they will be led astray in the masses. And they began what they call catechism, the need to say we need to get our kids into a place where someone's teaching the principles of the kingdom of God, the, the fullness of the word of God, and the instruction of living in truth, and why that's an error, and this is true, with a logic base, not just because, well, this is what the Bible says, so screw them. No, give a real reason why God is communicating this is the way to live and begin to express it through the word of God. St. Augustine, they, they just didn't have anybody teach. They had high-level people that were instructors at the time said, you know what, I'm going to devote my time to speaking to the next generation, and I want to challenge every person here, whether you're a parent or not. It's important that you learn the truths of the kingdom of God so you can pass it to the next generation. They need you. And it's time for us to quit relegating it to someone else to say, I don't need to know that. Yes, you do. You need to know the truths of the kingdom of God and you know how to stand in an apologetic way or in a defending way of why these truths are so important. Here's a question we have to ask. Do our children have the tools to identify truth, especially in a society that's overwhelmed with disinformation? Proverbs 22 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And here's something I think. We are silent because we are uneducated. You want to say something, you just don't know what to say. Someone starts a conversation, you're like, I just know it's wrong. But why? It just is. But why? Because the Bible says so. Yeah, but, but Why? I don't know. Is that an excuse anymore? You have access. Did I mention you had a phone? You have access to so many dynamic communicators that can teach you how to stand for the truth, that have a viable conversation that can give you the tools that you need to minister to your kids, to the kids that you're mentoring. Maybe you're not a parent. Maybe you're engaging in kids' lives, and you should be, to say, I want to have something to say and a way to say it that's meaningful, that goes, I can see why you're saying that, but have you ever considered? And you can actually put out from that consideration a thought about God and his purpose and his plan that isn't driven by condemnation or shame or, 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 or anger or judgment, but simply by saying, hey, I can understand why you think that. I can see by all the things you've heard that would be a thing you think, but have you ever considered? Have you ever considered the, this other way that, that might be a better way? Every one of us have been called by God to be able to have that conversation. It's time for us to quit putting on the responsibility to somebody else and get busy about putting the word on the front. Put it on our door, put it on our mirror, put it in our car. When you get in the car, I know you like to hear that happy jazz music, but maybe every once in a while you should spend a little bit of time listening to someone teach you how to be ready to impact this community for the kingdom of God. It's time to be silent no longer. If we do not teach our kids to follow Christ, then the world will teach them not to. You know, it used to be protect your kids from whatever's out there. And now we have to expose them to what's out there and tell them how to defend against that, tr that truth that people are putting out. Remember, God has a pattern of living 
And learning it and walking in it is the highest form of living, which we're called to do. So as I close, one of the things that we find anytime we find ourselves astray, and I would say that our culture in America has been astray as far as its responsibility to pass truth to the next generation. You know, my mom and that generation made us go to church. They made us read our Bible. They, they did all these things. That at that time, we were like, well, that's so brutal. That's so up, upsetting. But they were working hard to try to get truth to us, even in their broken way, maybe even in their dysfunctional way. But them, for us, getting the truth was cre- clearly important. In my generation of parenting, it's almost like, well, kind of, you know, I don't want to, you know, go if you want. Don't go if you don't want. Who's the judge? We, we, we've abdicated. We've kind of let it up to them and the internet and TV be the instructors. And, 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 and I want to encourage you parents, spend time with your kids. Make a decision and a commitment to say, I'm going to be committed to spending time with my kids and learning about truths and having those conversations. I'm going to actually be intentional about creating conversations where we talk about relevant cultural issues that are on their heart, that they're talking about, that they're hearing about every day in school. And I want to give them some tools and understanding of why God views things a certain way, but i got to learn about it before I can talk about it. But we see in the book of Ezra, the children of Israel had come back from captivity. They'd been gone for 70 years, enslaved, and God sent them back to Israel. And they were conversating with one another and saying, man, where did we go wrong? And they were like, man, we went wrong because instead of living God's way, we began to marry all these foreign wives. We brought their religions into our home. We began to just kind of call the word of God sort of good, but it was just good like everything else was good. And the parents said, you know what we got to do? We got to repent. That's on me. My bad. I didn't take responsibility. That was me not honoring God and teaching my kids to be truthful in, in, in the Word. It was on me. I actually lost my way and my faith. i got to repent and ask God forgive me to not, for not towing the line and staying true to the kingdom of God. I gotta, it's got to start with me. I would say for all of us that we have to ask ourselves the question, maybe we need to come and say, God, forgive me for not taking the essence and power of your Word and the truth that it offers the way I should. Forgive me. I want to get myself back in a line with God's kingdom. I want to repent for not taking responsibility. The second thing is, is that we got to get busy about learning things that God has in store for us. God is faithful, and he gives us this pattern in his word on how to live. Satan is a liar. These are reminders and a scheming to deceive you from the truth. We need to infuse ourselves with God's word and learn how to defend the truth, and we need to pass it to the next generation. I want you to ask how you can let that happen for your life. Without you, the next generation is doomed. I know you look at me and say, Bill, this is your job. No, I can't. I can't do it all. I can't speak to them. I can't make it one-on-one. I can preach, and they'll go, yeah, whatever. They're going to go listen to someone else online, and he'll preach. But it's individuals that say, I'm willing to mentor, I'm willing to reach, I'm willing to love, I'm willing to give myself so the next generation finds Christ. It's on all of us to do that. And I want to encourage and challenge you to be a person that will live up to the standard that God has for you. It will take sacrifice. You're going to have to put your own phone down. You're going to have to change your own channel on your TV. You're going to have to make some decisions yourself to say, I'm going to quit damaging my soul and start doing the right things to help me become the person I need to be. As I close... God loves you. I started in the beginning saying God loves you. He cares about you. Whatever ails you in life, he's interested in. Whatever troubles you have, he's interested in helping bring ministry to them and healing. Wherever you find yourself in life, God is interested in you. He wants you to experience his grace, his peace, and his love. And I want you to know that that grace and peace and love is found in and through Jesus Christ. 
and the power of forgiveness of sins that changes the context of our life forever. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you went to church. Maybe you've never been to church. But there's something that's compelling in your heart today. And I want you to know it's the love of God that God's reaching down to you and touching you. And he simply invites you to do what I said earlier. He invites you to love him in return. And how does it begin? It begins by surrendering your heart to his love, to his lordship, receiving the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ, admitting your need for a a savior to be forgiven, and starting that new life with him. If that's you, I want to pray a prayer with you. It's a prayer of surrender. It's a prayer of dedication. It's a prayer of salvation. It's a life-changing prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray some words with me. I want you to make them your own words in your heart as you pray this prayer. Would you just all bow your heads for a moment? We're going to pray this prayer. Let's join together as we pray with maybe those that are making this decision to say, God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins so that I could be forgiven and receive the free gift of eternal life. You love me so much that you give me what I don't deserve. And I receive that free gift today. And I choose with all of my heart to follow you and to serve you and to follow your truths. Now fill me with your Holy Spirit and lead me in the way I should go. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, I appreciate you. I'm looking at a bunch of champions today that are going to take serious what you hear. You're going to start learning more than you can imagine. You're going to start becoming wiser than you imagine. You're going to have words to say. You don't think that you have the ability to communicate. God's going to show you that you do. You're going to actually be able to have reasonable conversations with unreasonable people and say compelling things that make them think about their faith and make them think about their life journey. You are going to become a champion of this generation to pass on the hope that is found in Christ because you're a diligent disciple of Jesus Christ. And as you go, I send you forth with this reminder that you are faithful, you are filled with the grace of God, and God will give you what you need to reach the generation that he's given you to live in. So may God bless you as you go. If you have prayer needs of any kind, there's going to be prayer ministry team leaders that are going to be up here. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy the heat. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. I really hope God moved in your heart today. And if you're in the Scottsdale area, I'd love for you to come and visit our campus on one of our Sunday services. You can find details to our service times on our website. I also want to thank our faithful givers. By giving towards our podcast, you're able to help us reach people from all over the world for Christ and fulfill the mission of Oasis, which is to love God, love life, and love people. God bless.